the, the people all grew flax in those days. And man, you want to see a field of flax in all your life. You've never seen as beautiful a sight as to see a large field of flax in full bloom with a nice blue bow on it. It's delightful to look at. I've seen 18 flax pullers in the one field, all pulling flax in a row across the field. And there were boys and girls and men and women. And they laughed and some of them sang. And there was the liveliest crowd of people that ever you listened to. It was five in the morning and it was hard out of work. Why not a number of work out of flax? Well, God, it shouldn't have been, uh, it shouldn't have been Jeff at all. <laughs> it should not. It shouldn't have been Jeff at all. I, I worked for 25 years in Gillis. And when Gillis closed, I went to Milford and worked for 25 years there too. I went into Gillis and I had four shillings a week in the store, time lingo. Then was the things that went on to the looms and we tied them and they were a shilling a hundred. Tied a hundred of them. We tied a hundred of them, twelve of them, a dozen of them for four shillings. That left me so much at eight shillings. Oh. When I started to work first, we had to be in at six o'clock in the mornings. And got home at, uh, stopped at eight o'clock and went back at nine for our breakfast. That was too far away for me and we made our drop of tea down at the factory. And we made our tea down at the day in the dining room at dinner time. That done us tonight till we got home to get our dinner. I remember after leaving school uh, that would have been uh, when I was about 16 years of age it would be it would be 50 years ago I used to work in two scotch mills. One was a co-op mill at Maydown near Benburb and the other one was Mills's convenient to that also scotch plaques. And there was as far as 10 and 12 scotches there, regular. And there was all tied up in stone vets. Each bullion was a stone tied and brought to the market. That went on for a good number of years. I don't generally remember exactly when it, it sort of died out. Possibly the end of the last war. Yeah, around that time. And most of that, most of that flax was all grown locally. Well, I remember we had flax here eleven years after that, and at that time there was plenty of people in the country, and would have the length of twenty-three or up to thirty, pulled. And then when they got it pulled, they put it in a flax hole. That, and next thing they kept it in for about ten days, I think. And then they took it out and they spread it and dried it and gathered it up and put it in sticks. And next thing then they brought it to the mill. And That'd then be in Ben Burb. In Ben Burb. Well, outside Ben Burb, where you were up at the mill town, I remember them bringing it there. So then they got it targed, what they call targed, and made it into flax for spinning, like into a cloth. There were gangs of men went round. Burns, they called them, 
and uh, maybe 20 in each boon under a leader. And they would pull, they would make a, a contract with the owner first for the amount of money they would get for their day's work. So they would line the uh, field out from the bottom and they'd pull in a straight line up the field, leaving behind them rows of beets tied neatly. A man was paid man. But then yeah. they used to do a lot of that swapping. One man, they'd go, you'd go to maybe 10 or 11 if other people would go and swap with 10 or so more. That was the swapping. That wasn't called a boon, though, was it? No, it would be, more, it would be called really a boon. Would it? It yeah. would. That'd the be same a boon. as the, the, the men it's who were hired, a, sort of. A boon, surely, and they used to be boons of different other things, too, in the farm. I wrote a poem, oh, many years ago, for a, a, country, a countryman's magazine, and the idea of that was to show how one of the, the processes of which they're familiar could be put into tolerable affairs. Now, here's just a two stanzas to explain how one actually does pull the flax out of the ground by hand. With the left hand drag and the right wrists pull, the light stalks lie on the bent left knee. The back knot raised to the crack, crooked arms full, or the first pie laid in the waiting ba- band. A good beats ready with four or three, and twisted light with a well-schooled hand. The knot's the same for a sheaf of corn, a spiral twist, and it pushed beneath. Then the lifted beat is given a turn, and tossed right back to the, with the knot below. The stalks by now are as rough as teeth, as you strive to keep in a ready row. I might have to explain there that the word beet has nothing to do with beetroot. It was a bundle of flax as you pulled it into a bundle, into a sheaf, and then tied it with this band of rushes. That was called a beet. And you mentioned the band there, which was a special thing too yes. for the flax. Yes. Uh, rushes. R- rushes, generally. rushes, yes. yes. They called that sprit. The bands of sprit made the day before are flung in a heap near the open gate. That yes. Was, yes, they were, they were laid out ready for you. The man who was getting his flax... The women, in fact, often prepared the the, the bands, wasn't that? Yes, they were made the days before, and they were there in the morning when you came up, and you picked up as many as you needed, you see, and started into pulling. The woman in the house wrote very hard. (laughs) They had to make bands for the flax, the most of them. They were tied up, the sprit didn't rot, like in the flax hole. I suppose that was the reason they were made of sprit. So it would be the same coming out of the flax hole as it It went into it, more or less. That's right. And it was now it was a very hard job, I'm telling you. Well, then you had to cook for all these men you as well. You had to cook for all these men, but that time there was plenty of stuff for to cook for them. They could hardly get the same stuff now. When, when the uh, flax was all pulled, the, it was drawn by horse and cart. Um, two men usually just pitched on a load of the green flax and uh, drew it to what we call the flax hole. It was also called a flax dam. And uh, it was buried. Uh, there were two different methods of burying it. Some buried with the heads down, and uh, then it's also buried with the with the roots down. And after it was uh, buried, um, it was covered with uh, sods, just sods cut along the bank, or stones maybe. And stones t- also was used. Anything just to keep the flax from floating on the top of the water. Uh, one of the reasons, I think, for burying it uh, with the bows down, the head, that is, 
was uh, if the flex hole was very deep, it kept it from going too far down. I think that was the reason for that method. How long then did it stay in the flex hole? I think it was uh, 12 days. Uh, 12 days would be an average. They would go and test it then to say, depending on the water, if there was hard water now, it took longer. Soft water, rainwater, that type, uh, it would um, you know, decay quicker. The reason for the bend was that the hard surface on the stalks would rot and then when it was dry, they would break off easily, leaving the, the linen. I mind them taking it out of the... getting up at maybe, say, four o'clock in the morning, men would have got up for the... threw out a, a hole of flax, as they called it, out of the flax hole for the... <coughs> that had it rains that way, that they had to go maybe to somebody else to pull for... The, to start at nine or ten o'clock to pull their flax the next day. And they had already their swap iron, so they couldn't very well let them down, so maybe threw it out at... From four o'clock on ahead in the morning to get it out and would have threw it and maybe threw it in the, they called it butts of flax, wasn't it? <clears throat> threw them through the feet and let the women, they would have spread it then during the day, you know, while the men were away pulling somewhere else. And that was the general idea of it. Well, then there was the water that was in the flax hole had to be dammed for, say, maybe weeks before it was ready for putting the flax in. Well, then there was a problem, maybe a flood come on it come in, it would have, if it had got into the flax hole, onto the flax that they had in in the flax hole, it would have destroyed the flax, so then they had it, well, most flax holes, you'd, you'd always see a, a, like a channel dug away down the side into an hour drain, that was to take the fresh water, fresh to keep the fresh water from getting in on the flax, so remember those things, so then when they put flax in, they used to have to, there was the sodden of it, to put it down into the water. Well, that had to be done. Well, night of the younger used to be maybe tramping about over these swords and things like that. And of course, it was an unpleasant job getting into the flax hole and <laughs> forking out the the flax. Well, you had to had to handle it as well. Well, they had to handle it very cool. Like, and there was uh, there was no uh, there would have been no bikinis around like that. <laughs> used that, it was just the bare pal type of thing. And uh, as well as that, it was a sort of. Uh, anti-social thing as well because well, the, the smell lasted for quite a while well it was like the sailor in later years if you went to a dance after it you weren't the welcomest of guests <laughs> yeah well would there be a dance or a bit of a sing song when the flax would be pulled well there was there was the same maybe when they'd be burying the flax as I talked about burying it before they would bury it in this country they always talked about the, the the jumping of the flax hole and uh, Con Neil would have been one of the local jumpers and my uncle Barney well I think Con had the had it over him at the jumping of it Barney mostly finished up in the flax hole <laughs> and then at night time this was, was just uh, jumping from one side <coughs> of the flax jumping hole to the out. other it was a flax hole I suppose would have been what 12-14 foot wide you need to be a good jumper well yeah I'd have been them they're doing fair hard work and I suppose they're in fair good shape but <laughs> By one of those little ironies of life in the country the acres of brilliant blue blossom which had been so attractive to the eye now putrefy in the dammed up ponds and offend sensitive nostrils for miles around Seamus Heaney in his first book of poems speaks of the flax dam festering in the heart of the townland Daily it sweltered in the punishing sun bubbles gargled delicately Blue bottles wove a strong gauze of sound around the smell. 
but it was a smell you easily learned to live with. John Hewitt. I wouldn't say obnoxious. I, I used to really like the smell of going down to the glens of Antrim, where we had a cottage for years. When you went to log the lanes in the autumn and the evenings, you could smell the flax ritting in the dams. And I liked the, the rank smell of the flax. It wasn't a nasty smell to me. It was a homely smell, a familiar smell. Which is more than could be said of the chemical processes and indeed of some of the impersonal mass production methods of the big commercial firms like My Gashel. My Gashel, he grew the flax. Oh, thousands of acres of it. Thousands of acres of it. We pulled flax for My Gashel for many days. He wasn't paid the man for the full flax. And had machines for pulling. But they, they had thousands and thousands of acres, you know. He took the country side owning flax. It was an awful farm of flax, you know. It didn't belong to my guesser at all. It went up to the middle of the Bamboura. Well, it did, surely. But my guesser owned an awful flax. It was all worked up here, and that middle down my guesser too, for, for Scotland. Well, then, my guesser put most of their flax, you see, in this old tanks, and, and put their chemicals in it. Well, look at God, if you have smashed that, you'd, you'd, well, I'm saying you'd been better at home. <laughs> Oh, there were uh, lots of Scotch mills around, one or two in the locality, always on a river. They were all uh, water-driven by water wheel or water turbine. And uh, it was there was only a, a short season for the scotching because water was not always plentiful. And uh, oh, the scotching was a very dusty job and hard work too, very sweaty a toilsome job. And you had the shows, as they called it. Yes. The remains of the... Of the stalks of the flax. They all uh, broke off. The the scotch mill was... um, One section would be like uh, wooden handles, like made in this, uh, like a cross, and they rotated, uh, say, something like 60 revolutions per minute, and they held the, the flax over against this, uh, breaking the, the showers off and leaving uh, the clean linen, the linen strands. They, there were two different, three different uh, processes in the scotching. First, the, the man would take off just the rough off it, and then it would pass on to another man who would uh, clean it up more, and then to the finisher who finished it nice and tied it up in bundles. I think there was a stone weight, 14 pounds in each bundle of flax. Up to about 30 years ago, the growing of flax and its processing through the various phases of manufacture into articles of finished linen were features of life in the whole north of Ireland. While the bigger spinning and weaving factories were generally nearer Belfast, there were many smaller centres throughout the province of Ulster in which the whole life of the community tended to revolve around the same flax plant. Most of the people we've heard so far come from a few townlands around Benburb and County Tyrone. This was part of a great flax-growing area, mainly along the valleys of the Blackwater and Callan rivers, which extended northwards towards Dungannon, Coal Island and Cookstown, and took in Armagh City, Tassa and Cady to the south. Here you still have a number of mill towns and mill fords, and numerous mill rows, which grew up with the linen industry. Milltown on the Armagh side of the Blackwater near Benburb is one of them, and fairly typical. It started with a spade mill, established by one James Stevenson in 1729,
which changed over to linen manufacture in 1838. Other mills followed. You had the coal mill, you had Mills's mill, and Mills also, apart from the flax, he used to grain Indian corn as well as scotching flax. And then I come up the river here to Milltown, which is only, uh, there's a distance of a mile and a half, all together in the, in the, in the, in the three places. And that's around the road, you know, if you came across the river, it's oh, you, be you're doing, Well, you've been doing the banks, you're doing the canal banks. The, around the river, the canal, the canal run alongside the river, and, and the, uh, the canal banks run along the river and the bank, and you got the N3 factories on that run. First, you got Orr's factory, the Weavit factory. Then you got Mills and Scotch Mill, also the Corn Mill. And then you went on down to the Coal Mill. Corporative Scotch Mill. Across the water from Mills's, there was also a Corn Mill going there. And a Weavit Mill. Named McCain's, was on the name McCain. Or Nate McCain's. At several times they went men from this country to teach Scotchers in Balnau. Some come back with Balnau women. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, some of them living, living well yet. Dan Bob was, was uh, very busy uh, in the flax season. I think I can count some like three to four just off hand. And it was... The village more or less grew round this, the Scotch mills and there was what they called the mill houses, a row of houses, and uh, the electric light would be driven from this uh, flax mill too. And these houses were, in fact, built by the mill owners generally? The mill owner, he owned them, and uh, as far as I can remember, the rent of them was something like sixpence per week. In the 16th century, Shane O'Neill had a castle in Benburb, and flax was grown in the O'Neill territory even then. Of course, linen is one of the oldest textile fabrics known to man. The ancient Egyptians wore it and wrapped their mummies in it. And the early Irish epic Tainbo Coilne has references to the Lena, or all-white linen shirt, worn by one of the heroes. Linen, however, as an industry, having begun in the Dublin area, soon became localised in Ulster, and at different periods flourished in different areas of the province. W.R. Hutchison of Dungannon, historian and author of Tyrone Precinct, published in 1951. Uh, coming to the north of Ireland, it's a difficult thing to define that because uh, we learn from the old books that linen was quite common in the old Gaelic world. For example, now an old, uh, well, not an old, but a young uh, Gaelic woman would wear as many as 30 yards of linen about her. And when Mountjoy was uh, fighting Hugh O'Neill here in the north, he equipped his soldiers not only with weapons but with hooks, the idea being they could cut down the fields of flax to induce a kind of artificial famine. But the real uh, modern linen industry, of course, goes back to Cromelin and the Huguenots. They arrived in Lisbon at the end of the 17th century, and from the Lagan Valley, the industry spread out in this direction. It was all domestic, of course, before the introduction of machinery, and indeed, Tyrone was uh, probably the most prolific county of the, the whole lot in the production of linen. Uh, that is uh, even more than County Andam and County Down. I would say that uh, Tyrone was probably at its peak 
uh, at about the year 1800, roughly speaking, that would be the correct date. Uh, from then until about 1820, I would say, was the best. After that, of course, with the introduction of machinery, uh, the industry began to decline, both spinning and weaving. Well, the first uh, mill for handling flax was Dixon's Mill. Uh, it preceded uh, Moigashel by quite a few years. 1864, I think, was the date when uh, the Dungannon Mill was started here. On the site, may it be said, of a, an old whiskey distillery, uh, owned by a gentleman called uh, John Falls. But the, the great name and linen in Dungannon was that of Dixon. Dixon's linen was known throughout Ulster. Uh, Moy Geisel, uh, as it has been called, now Courtauld's, of course, uh, came about oh, 20 years or so later, and it uh, developed into the worldwide trade that we, we now know. There is still, of course, uh, some linen woven about here. There's a factory, for example, in Coal Island, the Coal Island Weaving Company, uh, which is still making linen, uh, not the handkerchief type or the cambric type or that uh, finer type, but it is still doing good trade. The linen industry, though greatly diminished from its former eminence, is by no means dead in the north of Ireland, and near Lisburn, where it really began 280 years ago, the Lambeg Industrial Research Association still grows flax for experimental purposes and encourages its use in textile manufacture. Ian Hamilton. The linen industry developed uh, along rivers, particularly in the old days, uh, because water power was needed and water was needed for the processes. And the Lagan Valley itself was one of the main arteries of the linen industry because of the good communications between the growers of flax and the scutchers of flax and the people who spun and wove the cloth. And indeed, uh, the markets were held in Lisburn. Tuesday was market day in Lisburn in the old days when it was a, a linen market and Tuesday still market day in Lisburn. And it was to Lisburn uh, that Louis Cromelin came to uh, help the linen industry here in the 18th century become uh, rationalised and in those days modernised and was no less a figure than King William himself that appointed Louis Cromelin to overlook the uh, bringing up to date and modernisation of the linen industry of those days. And Belfast, Lisburn, this area has always been the centre ever since, I suppose. It has tended to be uh, the centre from Belfast along the Lagan Valley through Lisburn and then branching out Banbridge and uh, uh, various centres, Lurgan, Portadown, uh, round there still have uh, concentrations of linen. And it's appropriate, I suppose, then, that uh, the research centre was established here in one of the old houses which uh, belonged to people who were in the linen industry in the old days. The manufacturers in the north are all cottiers who are scattered over the country and they grow their own flax and potatoes, wrote Sir John Carr in 1805. He saw the spread of the linen manufacturers as having an immediate tendency to civilise and enlighten those who are employed in them. From their present dispersion, he wrote, one advantage arises, the manufacturing cottier is more healthy than if he were shut up in a crowded working room. The rhyming weavers of the Braid Valley and County Antrim would certainly seem to prove Carr's point about the civilising influence of the linen making. They formed a school of verse makers and their work has been brought to the notice of modern readers within the last few years by the poet John Hewitt. Yes, they uh, wrote about the rhyming weavers 
that is the rhyming weavers of County Antrim and County Down, mostly round the Braid Valley, round Bellamina, Cullybacky, and then right on down Bally Newer, Bally Clear, that, 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 that long valley there, and then in north and east down, you get them too. And of course, because they were uh, mostly descended from Scots planters, they wrote in a Scots vernacular. And so th- some people said they were like Robbie Burns, and imitated Burns, but that wasn't so because they were writing that way years before Burns was born. Were the weavers a special type of people? Were they sort of more introvert and poetic than uh, a lot of other craftsmen? Well, I don't know. I, I think it's sitting at the loom and beating the shuttle backwards and forwards that left the mind free to compose a rhythmic sort of speech. And, the, 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 and of course, you're working the treadles too, which is another with your feet. So you, your hand moving and your feet moving are all rhythmic motions, and that may have set up a kind of uh, accompanying uh, emotion of rhythm in their minds. Indeed, one of the old weavers said here in one place that, For manners you may plainly see, I learnt upon the treadle, and for my state, my stars and me, I squabbled from the, st- I squabbled from the cradle. You see, there, that's the, the they were th- sitting. Of course, the the the, f- the whole flax business was very domestic. The flax was grown, and pulled, and uh, retted, and scotched, and then the woman spun stuff into threads, and then the threads were spun into the web on the loom. So a house would normally have a spinning wheel, where the, some of the women worked at it, and then you had the loom maybe in the same room or in the next room, which was worked by the man only, because women didn't do any weaving. They did the spinning. It was on the summer's evening, all in the month of June. I was sitting silently, condoling at my loom. My scissors, they sang sweetly, and my shuttle nimbly flew. When I first composed these verses on the mid of Now, these verses by the Rhyming Weavers were produced mostly from 1750 to about 1850. That was the boom period. Uh, then after that, they, it died away, and you get to, in the last half of the century, you get very few genuine fine poems by the weavers or people of their kinship. Uh, it was due to a number of reasons. One was the language thing. You see, they wrote in Scots vernacular, the same language as Robbie Burns and James Hogg, because it was the language they spoke at home. <coughs> but when they, by this time, by the mid, by 1830, they were beginning to go to the national schools, and there they got to rub across the knuckles for talking like that, and they were taught how to spell in the proper standard English way, and so the old vernacular died away. But then there was the other, even more important factor, and that was that about 1840, the factory system came in, and machines were introduced, and water power was harnessed, uh, and all kinds of devices were uh, invented to take the burden off the cottage loom. And so instead of working at home, the weaver flocked into the factory, and he left his songs behind him. He maybe had to sing in the factory floor, though I think probably the women sang a bit more when they worked in the middles too. But the, 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 the making of original verse at the far side, or on that the loom, perish completely. 
Oh, do you know her or do you not? This new dolphin mistress that we have got A likeness of each, it is her name And she hangs her coat upon the highest frame Ruddy rifle, rah, ruddy rifle, On Monday morning when she comes in She'll hang her coat upon the highest pin She'll turn her down for to view her girls Saying, damn you doffers, lay up your ends Ruddy rifle, rah, ruddy rifle, The factories in Belfast, of course, produced their own songs in due course But the sense of community of the village workers was largely gone It kept the people together And of course it supplemented uh, the income of the farmers As a matter of fact, an ancestor of my own um, uh, just thought of this, uh, was a reed maker. He made parts for looms. Oh, he's about five or six generations back uh, in County Antrim. And it was said of County Antrim, and I'm sure it was true here of Tyrone, that every single farmer uh, had his loom, uh, which is one of the reasons, of course, why the North suffered uh, not so badly at the time of the famine, because they weren't so absolutely dependent on the land. In the winter time, he could always turn, uh, turn an honest penny at the loom in the kitchen, and the whole family took part in it. it uh, well, that was one of the things that kept families together, as a matter of fact, uh, because each member of the family had his own specific function. Uh, from that point of view, it had a very strong, I think, social influence, linen-making. And I think you often come across occupations mentioned in old documents, weaver, spinner, scutcher, yes. various terms like that. Well, that's right, uh, if you look at the old accounts of Market Day in Dungannon, for example, you find uh, uh, at the top of the tree would be the, the bleacher who was coming in to uh, buy brown linen to take away the bleach. There would be the man in the shop who sold the flaxseed. There would be the, the uh, spinner who would bring in his thread to sell and the weaver who would buy the thread to take home to weave. And you had about half a dozen different uh, sides to the industry functioning on a market day in Dungannon. And incidentally, to show you how many there were, uh, on a market day, the population of Dungannon, which was 3,000 in about 18 and 20, swelled to 7,000 on a market day, more than doubled. So there was a very strong community interest in the linen industry, all right. All through the great machine-dominated period, the flax industry remained very much a communal effort as far as the farmer-producers were concerned. The flax was still pulled by hand, and the boons or work groups still assembled for the occasion. But as the man-made fibres took over after the Second World War, the flax growing ceased, and many of the smaller mills closed down. There's no work around by board now at all, no flax mills or not, going at all. There's not a head going at all. Mills is all down. All them houses and mills is all away. All took away and down. And so the coal mills closed too, and the old boat and the mills, you know, you know what I'm saying, you know well, you know what Mulligan Gunner lived? It was a middle on there, down to put it on the field on there. Well, it's down to anyway. On the Armagh side of the Blackwater, however, just across from Ben Burb, one mill still survives which uses flax as a raw material. That's Joseph Orr's Limited, mentioned earlier, and they produce the interlinings which go, for example, to stiffen the lapel of a coat or jacket. But as in nearly all the textile factories nowadays, the flax used is no longer Irish grown. That's combed, a dew-relit comb too. And where did that come from originally, the material for that? Oh, I would say that came from Russia. 
And the Russians and the Belgians are the people who now supply any bit of Belgians and, and the Dutch, we, we have. which is mostly due at it. And, and uh, the, uh, the Kurtry flex is finer in quality than what the Irish flex was. wouldn't be any stronger, but uh, it was a finer, finer quality. The ultimate fibres were finer. It wasn't so coarse as the Irish flex. It wasn't so hard. It was more kindly to the handle. What we would get... In uh, to work with would be the spinner's finished article. That's to say, a weaving a yarn for weaving purposes. But we weave it into cloth, and we finish it. Some of it ourselves, and some of it get finished outside, and we sell the finished article to London and Leeds, and some to Glasgow and Edinburgh. Well, how are things at the moment? Well, now since 1974, from the trade recession set in. Uh, as we are serving the tailoring trades more nearly exclusively, we have been very, very badly hit. And uh, really, the, uh, it's nearly impossible to keep going. We have only a very few looms weaving at the present time, and even with those, uh, we're producing far more than we're sending out on our own account. How many looms would that be? We have only 20 going at the moment. But of course, we'll have our finishing as well. And how many people would you employ then? <clears throat> Well, we're down very low now. There's only 15, including myself, but I do the entire running of the place and the office work and the books and everything else, buying and selling and costing. This looks very complicated now. All the, the spools, how many would you have there? There. Actually, there's 220 in that particular set there, and we'll only make three beams of that. It's only for a window cleaner scrim, a very, very coarse thing. I can show you samples of the cloth, actually. We'll go out to the weaving shop, and that's the next uh, I'm trying to just take it in a sequence. Well, you wanted a noise effect. <laughs> Plenty of noise here, all right. Well, not really. You see, we've only 20 going over the whole shop. And this is, this is all uh, mechanical. Yeah, and, and it's non-automatic. In other words, the weaver is confined to normally four looms. Whereas if there were fully automatic looms, you could handle eight or ten or even twelve. But... There's no demand on our end of the trade now for increased production at all. And it'd be counterproductive for the put-in automatic. Could we talk to one of the weavers, I wonder? Uh, are, they, are they too busy there? Oh, no. <laughs> get, get away a bit from the noise here. Go on in there. We're just in inspecting the, the mill here and seeing how it goes. What exactly do you do on it now? Weave. Just weave the four looms. You look after four looms, yeah. do you? Is that a big job? Yeah, sometimes. It all depends. <laughs> good to give you good days and bad days. It's, it's very noisy there. Oh, yeah. Do you get used to the noise? Well, I have anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, this, uh, there are very few weavers left now, really, are there, in, in the country? Well, I imagine so, anyway. No. Yeah. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> uh, how did you learn the trade yourself? 
Well, uh, here's a young girl here, and uh, at that time we had a lot more looms going. The trade was much better. And there was a woman here, she was deputed to teach all the youngsters coming in, you see, and learned that she was one of them. The idea of the beetling is, uh, if you see the loom state cloth, it's uh, reasonably open. But the hammering, the beetling, it flattens the threads down and makes it a thinner, more like a sheet of paper, and it spreads them out and fills the cloth up better. So and it, 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 it imparts a gloss to it, which you might have seen on the slate round beside there, whereas the loom state cloth is a flat colour drab. So from the factory of Joseph R. Limited in Milltown, bales of linen finally emerge, which will go into the making of well-tailored suits in England. The product of the flax plant may have had to yield its one-time primacy to the upstart synthetic fibres of today, but it's still a favourite in the fashion world. The whole uh, research effort on linen is now a coordinated uh, European effort, and in a way there's a great revival of interest in not only linen but natural fibres because of the intrinsic qualities that they've got. Uh, linen's a very comfortable fabric, way back to biblical times, uh, they wore linen in hot climates because it was cool and comfortable. And the more we've used synth- synthetic materials in the recent past, we have tended to appreciate the virtues of linen from this point of view. And in fact, it's fashionable, I believe, in Paris at the moment. Oh, yes. And uh, very expensive as well. Indeed. <laughs> Italy, Paris, uh, throughout the continent, uh, linen is high fashion and there's a great promotional uh, scheme now whereby... The virtues of linen get uh, better known and gets introduced to people who may have uh, forgotten that it has uh, a lot of attributes. Well, who actually grows flax at the moment? In Ireland, uh, there is very little flax grown, some in various parts uh, for thatching, but none for fibre. In Donegal, I believe, they grow it for thatching. That's right. Uh, we got some flax there uh, a year or so ago, and uh, it uh, is quite a good cash crop uh, on a limited uh, scale because there aren't all that many thatched houses now. And of course the seed of the flax is very valuable. Oh it is indeed. Uh, From the seed you get linseed oil and the residues uh, valuable cattle food and uh, while the flax that's used for uh, linseed is basically a shorter uh, plant than the fibre flax uh, attempts are being made to produce hybrids which will give um, a good flax fibre yield as well as uh, a good seed yield. And these are taking place uh, on the continent now where most of the flax breeding is taking place. And you can have uh, white blossoms, I believe. White blossoms, blue blossoms, pink blossoms. The old traditional varieties uh, were blue-blossomed. The wee blue blossom, we have a film here in the Institute made in the 1930s called The Wee Blue Blossom. And... uh, it uh, shows not only a changed linen industry of that time, but a whole changed way of life. It's a social commentary of the time. It is for James McGowan, 
He lives in English hell. He never knew what poverty was till he came to the Milltown Mill. The Potterman and Earl Coplum, his fortune to commence, but he never went over the Donnelly's Hill with more than eighteen pence. There's a man called Thomas Beggs. He wasn't actually a weaver, he was a bleacher. That's the trade he worked at. But he wrote a sad poem called The Old Wife's Lament for Spinning Wheel. And there's one verse of that that I think uh, sounds a very, an excellent epitaph for the whole movement of the rhyming weavers. And when I was arrayed and hale and young, my thread came level and fine as a hair, and the kittens purred and the cricket sung, and the care of my heart was a lightsome care. Now men he invented a new engine and left but little for me to earn and little for me but to pinch and pine. I wish I had died when I was a burn. An epitaph not only for the rhyming weavers but for all those associated with the flax and the wee blue blossom in more recent times. The growers and pullers, the scutchers and hacklers, spinners and weavers, doffers and dyers, beetlers and band tires, all the people, craftsmen and craftswomen, who flourished when the bloom was on the flax. If you enjoyed this documentary, you might like to listen to our other Documentary on One productions. Visit rte.ie forward slash doc on one.